0: Welcome to the Mind Virus Show. If you guessed that we're going to be talking about Harry Potter today, well, you're right. It's the morning of October 25th, 2022. I am Jordan Bruno, and Bobby Flood is out hunting. (laughs) He is out enjoying the natural world, probably getting pretty cold looking for deer, I believe, in some unnamed western state. So he's not going to be with us today. And we chatted a little bit before this. He's okay with me going ahead and doing an introduction to the Harry Potter stuff. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. Well, just like the last time I solo podcasted, I'm going to go ahead and speak mostly extemporaneously. I've made about a half a page of notes. And I hope this will be interesting to you. Now, this podcast is going to build on podcast 92 entitled Cosmology. So if you haven't listened to that, I know it's a little bit of a chore. It's a four and a half hour monologue. If you haven't listened to that yet, you might want to go back and listen to that for context. Because I'll be assuming that you have listened to that podcast and I'm going to build upon that ground as I discuss Quidditch and Cosmos. Yes, the title of this episode is going to be Quidditch and Cosmos. And of course, that's a very clear allusion to Hugh Nibley's book, Temple and Cosmos, which he subtitles, Beyond This Ignorant Present. Now, if you remember... Hugh Nibley's books are compilations of essays and speeches that he produced throughout his career. And so they're not written uh, from start to finish in book format. They're essentially topic-based essays and speeches that cover sometimes the same ground and sometimes different ground. I just want to read to you the table of contents of the book Temple and Cosmos. And you need to know these were partially influenced by his assistants this one was edited by Don Norton but they're really really good uh the first section or first essay of Temple and Cosmos is well the first section is Temple and there are four chapters there uh, the meaning of the temple return to the temple sacred vestments and the circle and the square and then they have a section entitled Cosmos which covers The Expanding Gospel, Rediscovery of the Apocrypha and the Book of Mormon, Apocryphal Writings and the Teachings of the Dead Sea Scrolls, The Terrible Questions, One Eternal Round, The Hermetic Version, Chapter 10, Do Religion and History Conflict, 11, Genesis of the Written Word, then Science Fiction and the Gospel, The Best Possible Test, Some notes on cultural diversity in the universal church. 15, from the earth upon which thou standest. And then 16, a foreword to a book by Eugene England. Those titles, the the titles of those essays or speeches are are really intriguing, I think. It shows... (laughs) how open-minded Hugh Nibley was and where he was willing to go with the discussion really into pretty much any territory to discover whatever truth he could find. I think Nibley's model is one that we could really deeply consider and, and we ought to desire to emulate. In fact, it's not really Nibley's model. It's also Joseph Smith's model. Listen to these statements that are attributed to Joseph Smith. First of all, this. One of the grand fundamental principles of Mormonism is to receive truth. Let it come from whence it may. Here's another one. Mormonism is truth, and every man who embraces it feels himself at liberty to embrace every truth. Consequently, the shackles of superstition, bigotry, ignorance, and priestcraft fall at once from his neck, and his eyes are open to see the truth, and truth greatly prevails over priestcraft. Mormonism is truth. In other words, the doctrine of the Latter-day Saints is truth. Interesting stuff, right? Well, now I've just brought up Hugh Nibley and Joseph Smith, and I know we might have uh, listeners that aren't coming from a Mormon background, and you need to know that this presentation, this podcast, will probably be a little bit heavy on material from... Mormonism, especially as concerns eternal progression which was what Joseph clearly and plainly taught at the end of his life in 1844 and taught in more veiled terms throughout his ministry e- even before the a first official church body was formed in New York in the 1830s in, in 1830 actually so He was on this track the whole time. It's just that his message was always viewed through uh, Protestant eyes, and because of the misunderstanding of terms and the misunderstanding of context, Joseph gets viewed as being a very Protestant Reformationist or or Revivalist. But that's really not the case. Uh, He was involved in restoring something far more ancient. Scholars or people who study this stuff would call what Joseph was looking for the priscus sapientia which in latin means the original knowledge or the original truth original knowledge is really what that means and the idea is that adam had that original knowledge given to him by god and joseph talked about that and again i am speaking extemporaneously here so as is typical with The way I work, I'm already off on a huge tangent from where I thought I would start with my notes. But, you know, I did get some pretty good feedback about the Cosmology podcast. I think there were a lot of people that enjoyed that. We had a lot of people listen to it. It seemed to be fairly uh, popular. Maybe that's the wrong word. It, It was fairly well listened to. And I'm not entirely sure because, you know, analyzing log files on the web is an imprecise science <laughs> it's kind of like playing horseshoes or throwing hand grenades you know close only counts in horseshoe and hand grenades horseshoes and hand grenades as they say so i'm estimating that we we had a pretty good audience for that podcast which is interesting to me it's it's, it's exciting to me because i think this stuff really is exciting i think this is the These subjects are the resonant things we want to talk about in religious circles, but we are limited because of the dogmatic nature of our institutional structures. And in some cases, in some of our groups, in some of our institutional settings, we are structurally incapable of going into this territory, which is is really sad. But nonetheless, uh, I guess I have to throw out the disclaimer that I'm speaking for myself, Jordan Bruno. I am not speaking for Bobby Flood. I am not speaking for any institution. I'm not speaking for Joseph Smith or Hugh Nibley. And in the case of Harry Potter, I am definitely not speaking for J.K. Rowling. (laughs) This may or may not be her opinion. Uh, It could be way... Uh, far afield from her opinion or, or her intentions as she wrote it but i am uh, I, what i see in these works that she produced or that she and her team produced is a retelling of the story of the cosmos in a very much more pure way a much more correct or or likable way than we've seen told, I think in our lifetimes, and you know there are a few other bodies of work that I think might compare. But what's interesting about Harry Potter is that this story is was it was the most widely known story of the end of the age of Pisces. If you consider that the age of Pisces ended in the year 2012 or thereabouts, you know, there's a range of time that a lot of people like to point to from the 1970s through to, to the 20 teens. And and there are others who believe that Pisces ends, you know, in two or 300 years, but you got to put yourself in the shoes of the ancient astronomers, the ancient star priests who would have been measuring the, the, astrological or astronomical ages if they're up in the early morning hours before the dawn on the spring equinox observing the eastern sky waiting for the sun to rise you got to realize you can see both Pisces and Aquarius prominent in the sky for for quite a while before the sun rises and Pisces is the two fish make kind of a check mark and the the second fish is way out there overlapping with Aquarius. So where Pisces ends and Aquarius begins is a little bit of a tricky situation. It's it's a, an ambiguous determination. It would, I think it would depend on a person's subjective opinion. And we do see, though, that in the ancient world, we have evidence, evidences, especially the Mayan calendar, which everybody got all geeked out about in the year 2012. We do have evidences that the year 2012 was a big deal and maybe the inflection point. And the year 2012, of course, was the year that the Marvel Studios released the first Avengers movie. And I don't think they did that unintentionally. I think that was very intentional. And they then proceeded to tell a story that inverted... The archetypes that were put forth in the traditional hero's story. And now their narrative is perhaps the most widely known narrative of the New Age, the Age of Aquarius, and it's all inverted. Now. <laughs> Uh, you know, I I haven't really gotten into a big, long explanation of all of that, and I don't really intend to today, but I guess I probably ought to stop and cover some of the uh, main points. So those of you that have listened to the Cosmology podcast will be better informed about the main overview uh, lay of the land here. If you if you haven't previously had these discussions with me before, I think it'd probably be helpful if I if I gave you some some big picture uh, overview of of what I'm talking about there and and these concepts that that um, make up this grand narrative that I've been talking about. And and Bobby and I probably don't see eye to eye on this. We're pretty close. Bobby is a, a very smart, bright individual, and I really appreciate the chance to. To dialogue with him every week. I know I like to put out my opinion, and so I'm going to tell you, try, I'm going to try to flesh out what my opinion is here on the grand narrative. But first, let me throw out just a few disclaimers, because if you're new to, the, new to this discussion, I'm, I'm making some assumptions here that I think you could look at these assumptions and you could take each one of them and make some pretty good engage in some pretty good study along these lines with available materials. And I think that, you know, just thinking about these things, you'll start to, you know, unless you really just want to be super dogmatic, I think you'll start to agree that these are important points, especially if you're coming from uh, Joseph Smith, Mormon background. And again, you don't have to be, I I hope we have people that aren't, from that background, that are listening to this because it applies to everybody. But, uh, you know, the Mind Virus show, Bobby and I are both uh, LDS and we come from those backgrounds. And so we end up talking about those themes and topics. And my guess is that a lot of our listeners on the podcast also come from that background. Please feel free to, to weigh in on the comments section of the website, mindvirus.show. If you have uh, comments, concerns, want to contribute to the conversation or influence the direction that we take, we'd love to hear from you. And, you know, if you use your real email address, it won't, it will only show up to us. If you want to start a private conversation with either me or Bobby, I would invite you to go ahead and do that by commenting. And if you'd like us to take your comment down, but just keep track of your email address and start a private conversation, uh, feel free to comment and I'll see that. And then I can get in touch with you. I don't want to give out my email address on the air <laughs> or post it on the website and invite a lot of spam. but if if you want to chat offline, you know, feel free to do that. We don't need to leave your comment up. if you If you've already commented, your comment will automatically post. And I think I know most of you that have already commented. but if you haven't already commented, you can post a comment that will need to be reviewed first. And you could send us your email address in the email field. And it, anyone that posts their email in there, we we do have those emails, but we don't do anything with them. Except, as uh, Bobby would want me to disclose, we do give them to Pfizer. Pfizer, the drug company. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because, of course, they sponsor everything. But, anyway, so there's a few... Points that I think foundational points or disclaimers that I I believe would characterize our audience for the most part. If you've listened this long, this is the ninety eighth episode. Yeah, that's right. Last week was episode ninety seven, Kill Switch Money, uh, which I thought had some interesting content related to current events and currency but yeah this is our 98th episode it will be called quidditch and cosmos and if you've listened this long that's almost 2 years <laughs> and so i assume that uh something here is interesting to you and if you if you've stayed on cuz cause, cause most people who uh are more comfortable with the orthodox narratives will tend to turn off this type of a thing it can only take so much information that's outside the box to put it mildly. So my guess is that you if you're listening are starting to realize that we're not in Kansas anymore, so to speak, that that your that your experience in, and I'm trying to put this very gently that your experience in whatever institutional church you're attending it, it may be good it may be great you may enjoy it for you might enjoy it for uh, social reasons you might uh, believe it's the true church you might believe that it's really important for you and your family or or uh, others to experience but my guess is if you're listening this long that you realize that it's not the whole story that there's more to the story that you need to acquire and perhaps you're all also Maybe I'm putting it too mildly. Perhaps you're realizing that there are deficiencies in that system that you personally want to rectify. And I'm not attacking anyone's culture or religion here. Uh, You know, I think if you find goodness and truth and positivity in those institutions, you should participate. And you should also... um, I know there are a lot of people that feel like they need to contribute their goodness and positivity to those situations so that's, that's a that's a good thing in general, but you also have to recognize where when there's a control mechanism that is trying to stif- stifle your ability to repent your ability to change and expand your mind and, and to change and expand the minds of y- your children or your family members or, or people that you love so that's a that's a big issue and, and again i 'm very clearly referencing the the definition of repentance that i gave in episode 92 on cosmology the idea that uh, what we're interested in here on the mind virus show is metanoia the change or the expansion of the the heart and mind not repentanceia which is the latin word that was used for, to translate metanoia, meaning r- to repunish yourself or pay penance, that's not what we're interested in here on the Mind Virus Show. We want to expand our thoughts, expand our minds, and uh, approach and and discover as much truth as possible. Okay, another thing that I think that you're probably comfortable with, if you've been listening this far, is the idea of polytheism. When I say polytheism, of course, I mean that you are probably open to the discussion of God the Father and God the Mother and God the Son as separate and distinct individual beings and possibly a daughter, goddess, and other gods or angels or heavenly hosts who have a direct impact on this world. Now, if you're coming from the Mormon background, that shouldn't come as a huge surprise. It might be a little bit of a cognitive dissonance because we generally tend to tell each other that we are monotheists, that we come from this Judeo-Christian background of monotheism. That is technically not the case. In the last public discourse Joseph gave, which can be found at the end of teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, he basically, you know, they had accused him of teaching polytheism plurality of gods and he said yeah I've always been teaching that you know the Father the Son the Holy Ghost they're separate and distinct individuals which is not conducive with the Trinitarian outlook which prevailed and has has prevailed in Protestantism and Catholicism for uh, a long long time so that may be viewed as an innovation by some but it technically is not and there are people who will point to statements in the Book of Mormon. And now I'm off on another tangent here. I'm going to teach you something really important in my opinion, of course. If if you're listening to this, you care about Jordan Bruno's opinion, You, if I speak matter-of-factly, you can always add it's his opinion onto that if it makes you feel um, <laughs> bothered that I would say something emphatically. But I think it's very, very important that when guys like Abinadi... Called Jesus the very eternal Father of Heaven and Earth, that you realize that that is not a Trinitarian statement. The Book of Mormon prophets need to be viewed with a cosmist lens, with a with a more ancient lens than what we put on them. Even though the Book of Mormon comes across in King Jamesian language, that is not how these Book of Mormon prophets ought to be viewed. They came from a background where there were competing religious traditions, most of which believed in multiple gods. They had left the Jewish religion because of its failings, because of how it had wrecked the religion. And this is not often taught in Sunday school, and it's definitely not taught in other Christian denominations. But w- w- in the Mormon culture, we have this very significant... um. Happening with Lehi leaving Jerusalem right before it was destroyed, and we try to marry that with what's commonly understood relative to Josiah and the reforms of the Deuteronomus in the uh late seventh century b c so six hundred twenty five ish when they or twenty three ish when they gutted the temple we uh, will often refer to that as Josiah's cleansing of the temple, but that was the Jews. Fully solidifying and fully cementing monotheism in their culture, they got rid of the emblems of the woman, the Asherah, and the tree, and they brought forth the law, which was the Book of Deuteronomy, uh, meaning Second Law in Greek, or some believe it means Copy of the Law. But they, the, these, uh, I believe, it was elements of their culture that wanted to assert greater power, elements of their their priestly hierarchy that wanted to dis- to displace other parts of the priestly hierarchy they brought forth the book of the law they cleansed the temple they had uh, cemented their influence over Josiah and uh, they began to remove all the elements of the older religion and uh it was a very very difficult time for people like Lehi who I believe would have been aware of the problems i don't think that he just all of a sudden repented and had no basis for repentance and then Praise to the Lord and has a throne theophany. I believe that he had to have faith, which as I described in the cosmology podcast, faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse one is hope for the actual reality and simultaneously the means of finding it out. Faith is as Alma states belief in things which are hoped for, which are true. So, Lehi, when he prayed, he had to, I believe, have a basis of understanding of the unseen world that was far greater than we tend uh, to—it's just not even part of the discussion, at least in Mormon circles. And so he sees into the heavens, he sees the layout of the heavens, and he describes certain things there in the first chapter of Nephi, that are very, very significant and match up with ancient ap- ap- apocalyptic or uh, Ascension-style texts that were removed from the Old Testament. They're found in the Pseudepigrapha and the Apocrypha, texts like the uh, the Ascension of Isaiah or the Apocalypse of Abraham or even the Book of Enoch. These describe prophets who saw the greater cosmos and they are conspicuously absent from the Old Testament, and that's because those who compiled the Old Testament, the Jews, wanted full control over the narrative, and they changed the narrative. Now, if you want more information on this, there are a couple of books you can read by Margaret Barker, The Older Testament, and Enoch, The Lost Prophet, which describe this older religion and the older temple cult. So in a nutshell, what we think, what we traditionally believe was going on in Old Testament times uh, that we've learned in our, our church settings, our Sunday school settings, that's probably not the case. In fact, it's probably far removed. And what, what we have is the Jewish version of it. And remember, the House of Israel had 12 tribes, 12 houses and uh, there's far more to the story than we commonly understand. So, so we're broaching that subject here on the Mind Virus Show, and I'm wanting to demonstrate how uh, how uh, widely spread elements of the Prisca Sapientia, elements of the original story, the, the, the grand narrative, have become in our society, and they, they persist because they're resonant to us. And we chafe, we resist, we... Um, we... I guess cringe often is a good word for for what, what you feel when you see a story that has been... that has hacked up the archetypes, that has destroyed the archetypes. This is, again, why the Star Wars stories, the the most recent ones... Uh, the r- most recent big movies with ray and them didn't do so well because they wrecked all the archetypes and they wrecked the the elements of the grand narrative that and the hero's journey that are so important. Okay, well anyway, I keep getting off on tangents here. Uh, well, I could spend the next couple of hours discussing the deuteronomistic rebellion and how it was uh very similar to the rebellion of the early Christians in the 2nd and 3rd and 4th century that formed the Orthodox Church. Uh, Most people blame that apostasy, at least in Mormon circles, on the rationalist Greeks and the philosophizing Greeks. And that is in no way the case. It was the Judaizing Christians that wanted to bring elements of the Jewish religion back into Christianity that created that orthodoxy. And... (laughs) that's just a fact of life when you really start to study it. One of the un- unfortunate side effects of how history doesn't seem to match the bi- biblical narrative is that you have a lot of scholars that will become agnostic and lose their belief in God because as they come to know important evidence, remember, I don't want to say facts because what is history really? Is it, uh, is it the truth, or is it uh, evidence of what happened accompanied by reason and debate? All we, all we know, all we have is evidence, so we have to consider ourselves history detectives here. Anyway, Hugh Nibley writes, or one of the, one of the essays they included in Temple and Cosmos was, Do Religion and History Conflict? <laughs> That's a big deal, and it was a big deal in, in Hugh Nibley's day, and it's, you know, people seem to be less and less religious, or, you know, it depends on what you mean by religious, but people are less and less attached to traditional Orthodox narratives, I think, because they they haven't been able to withstand the test of history. But one thing that does mesh with and complement the historical narrative as, as pertains to spirituality and religion is Joseph Smith's religion, if... We're willing to look at it with a different lens. If we have to look at it through the traditional Protestant, Judeo-Christian Old Testament lens, then <laughs> then we have a problem. But if we can see him as a more ancient, a more a more an, a, a, a bigger anachronism than than we have already uh, set him out to be if we can see him in a more ancient light he does fit with the ancients and he fits very comfortably but we we have uh we have the protestanties that we have to cut through and have to realize that he's he was dealing with a very protestant audience his entire life well anyway if uh, this is all because i started talking about the plurality of gods and polytheism and had to get into the deuteronomistic rebellion if you are open to the idea that we have a, a father god and a mother god, goddess, and um, a son and a daughter god and goddess, and other gods and goddesses, or other heavenly hosts or angels, however, whatever you want to call them. These would be the inhabitants of the heavens. If if you are comfortable with that sort of a rich pantheon, a rich uh, cosmology. then uh, I think you, you'd be open to what we're about to talk about today. And I would also point out that just because we might think that way, it doesn't mean that we would limit or damage the supreme sovereignty of the Most High God. In the, in the ancient narratives, whether they're inverted or correct or wrong or whatever, or right, in whatever ways they're wrong or right, they tend to have uh, certain gods that are more more powerful, or or hierarchically uh, above other gods, they have a hier they have a hierarchy of gods, and so th- this is one thing I run into talking to, to talking to evangelicals relative to Joseph Smith's um teachings is that you know how can you have Jesus be sovereign when there's a god above him and you know that's true. Uh, you can't have uh, Jesus be the Most High God if there is a Most High God. And it if you have to literally and linearly interpret the Bible, which may have been changed or, or might be misunderstood, then you're going to have a problem with that. But if you can imagine a situation where a king would bestow certain rights and sovereignty upon his son, the prince, who might bestow certain rights and dominion upon a son, you know, of his or a subordinate of his like Adam in the case of the l- lineage of, uh, or I don't want to say lineage, but the uh, the line of authority from the father to the son to Adam as as relates to dominion over this world, which we discussed in the cosmology podcast. If if you can acknowledge that type of a social setup, then you can see that there is a sovereignty among the gods and that um God the Father, who has placed the ultimate confidence in Jesus Christ, his son, wouldn't have a problem with you saying that Jesus is supreme. In fact, there's an interesting passage in the Mormon scripture. It's in Helaman chapter 10, where God gives Nephi certain sovereignty or power. And he says, uh, Behold, thou art Nephi, I am God. This is chapter 10, verse 6. I declare it unto thee in the presence of mine angels that ye shall have power over this people, and ye shall smite this earth with famine and with pestilence and destruction according to the wickedness of this people. I give unto you power that whatsoever ye will seal on earth shall be sealed in heaven, whatsoever ye loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, and thus shall ye have power among this people. And he basically gives him unlimited power, and the reason for that is he says in verse 5, I will bless thee forever, I will make thee mighty in word and deed and in faith and works, yea, even that all things shall be done according to thy word. So this is a very blank check. And the reason for it is he says, For thou shalt not ask that which is contrary to my will. So Nephi, the the great prophet, Nephite prophet, the great um, leader of the faith at that point, in the Nephite narrative and history, he was that in tune, that at one with the heavens and with the gods of light, that God was willing to make that statement. You will not ask anything which is contrary to my will. Therefore, whatever you say goes. So the the idea that we're somehow... damaging the sovereignty of the Most High God when we, when we have multiple gods or godly beings or heavenly beings is a little bit silly, in my opinion. It, we, we just have to have a less dogmatic reading and a more, a more um, open mind to the idea that individuals can be godly, which is the whole point of Mormonism. The big, the great reveal of Joseph Smith, that, that you and I are of divine heritage and that we're on a, a journey of progression. All right, uh, if you've considered all those things, you're probably willing to contemplate the damage that's been done by the monotheistic apostasies from Adam's religion. We, we talked about that a little bit. You're, if you're willing to look at it through this lens, you can see that there may be significant problems in the Old Testament narrative and that parts of Scripture have been hidden hidden or omitted or inverted because of iniquity. And so we have a lot of work to do to work out the problems and try to discover or rediscover or restore the truths that should be in Scripture, that are in Scripture, or that are hidden because of, Uh, Incorrect context uh, Omission Inversion Whatever You know If If um, If we take all of those Ideas that I've just laid out As true Then We have a great responsibility To go back and uncover What is right there Before our eyes That we We just can't see Because it's hidden Because of iniquity Or because we won't Consider narratives That are outside of the 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 uh, records that were left us by the apostate Jews Okay So if you are intellectually confident and comfortable Considering uh, sacred ideas Considering the grand narrative With all that in mind Let's continue I'm uh, I'll give you a time stamp here We're 37 minutes into this And we're just barely starting to get into context <laughs> Alright So In summary, the big question here is if Joseph Smith was involved in restoration, it stands to reason that we can find evidence of the teachings elsewhere, right? And the big question is what got restored? Was it uh, the early Christian church as the Campbellites of Kirtland, Ohio imagined it, or as the Protestants imagine it, or was it something earlier than that? Was it something polytheistic, something more unusual, maybe more Egyptian? Maybe something more along the lines of the Book of Enoch, maybe more apocryphal. Uh, what about the Templars and their legends? What about the Greeks and the Romans? What, is there room for those narratives or parts of those narratives in our understanding of the cosmos and of the religion of Adam, of the of the Prisca Sapientia? Well, we, we've talked a lot about the hero's journey here on the podcast and that's something that we would attribute to Joseph Campbell. He talks about the idea of the hero's journey and the monomyth, which he attributes to a fellow um, named James Joyce. He wrote a book called Finnegan's Wake. Well, Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, is a pretty famous book, and it's taught in film studies at colleges, and a lot of, a lot of film students have read it and it describes this uh journey that uh, it, it describes the uh elements that Joseph Campbell finds to be universal in all the myths and legends of the world the the religions the ancient religions of the world and so therefore he calls it the monomyth and these are archetypal elements of this journey of this hero as he goes uh through a process of transformation goes uh from his everyday world and has to cross thresholds, go through trials, go through a transformation uh, through apotheosis, and then return. The thing that bothers me about Campbell's overall big picture is that he's focused on uh, microcosm, the internal struggle within a person. Uh, He talks a lot about psychoanalysis and analysis of dreams and how these things relate to every person and their problems with their own father and with their own mother and with their own sexuality and with their uh, what they perceive to be their calling in life. This may be very appropriate in some ways, but I think he's stretching a lot. I think that myths and these ancient legends apply to a hero's journey, a universal hero's journey, that is more macrocosmic in nature. It involves this uh, cosmology that I described or the narrative that I described in the cosmology podcast where there was a war in the heavens and there were gods involved in this war, both good and evil, which resulted in our plight here in the world where we don't remember anything. And so the hero often, in, in the great narratives, the hero has to be awakened And this is where Bobby would pipe in and say, you're a wizard, Harry. (laughs) Well, that's the whole point, is Harry doesn't know that he's a wizard. That's why coming-of-age stories are so effective at conveying these type of archetypes and why they're so resonant, because we all have that problem. We've all forgotten everything. and, And if you consider yourself respectively Adam and Eve as again if you haven't listened to that cosmology podcast you should go back and listen to it for context because I want to build on that right here and not have to cover the same ground but when we're talking about temple theology which is a ritual drama that teaches you about the cosmos meaning the system of progression of eternal progression and where you're at in that story you have to consider yourself part of the story and we can all relate to being children and not knowing where we came from. And so Harry is a perfect uh, archetypal protagonist because he doesn't know his parents. And he's, he's living with his uh, aunt and uncle and his cousin. And they don't see in him anything redeeming, anything valuable. And, and he's essentially a forgotten uh, child. But it turns out he's something far greater than that. In fact, it turns out that he's destined to battle the Dark Lord and overcome him and preserve their entire creation. So uh, for Joseph Campbell to just kind of limit all these things to this internal microcosmic... it, it and He doesn't necessarily do that, but that's the, the, the feeling of the book. This is at the most macro level, the hero's journey, and when I say hero's journey, I mean Jordan Bruno's hero's journey, his version of it. It involves these elements that I'm talking about, which is a fall from grace. It involves a loss of memory, a degradation of the prior state. And then it involves Adam or Osiris or Horace or whoever, Harry Potter, to have to wake up and there's always supernatural aid, as, as Joseph Campbell explains. But then they become cognizant of the reality of the world, and then they must go through the trials and go through the struggle and the apotheosis. But they have to fight the evil one. And, and the most impactful of the stories are, are stories like Star Wars with Luke uh, destroying the Death Star or Harry destroying the Dark Lord, because they they give us this sense of the grand nature of the conflict and they do have to save the creation they have to save the world and in and when the stories and the archetypes are told in a more local setting it's generally uh that the protagonist is able to influence his town or his basketball team like in the case of Hoosiers <laughs> or uh in the case of uh, Stranger Things, for example, they they definitely are saving their own town, but it also uh, relates to the broader cosmos or the bigger world. Uh, anyway, you can see how how you can scale this down or scale it up, but it, it needs to be more than just an internal struggle. And that's important because if there's one thing that Joseph Smith taught when he taught about the plurality of gods and when he taught about the sociality that exists in the heavens. He was trying to explain that God is separate from us. Not not separate in the sense that we're cut off from him and we just need to go back to that big ball of light, but he's an independent individual with an independent personality. He has character, perfections, and attributes. He has, he is an the father is his own person and the son is similar, but separate. I may have previously mentioned this, but the reason that all of Christendom settled on the father and the son being the same entity was because of what they call the difference of one iota. If you've ever heard that phrase, the difference of one iota, there's not an iota's difference or whatever that comes from the, the, Debates in the ecumenical councils of the 4th and 5th centuries A.D., so starting in roughly 325 with the Council of Nicaea, these church fathers were fighting over the nature of God, and they had two different concepts. One was homoousius, that's the Greek for same substance, homoousius, and then there's the term homoousius, which means similar substance. And homoousius won out, so they decided that God, the three beings of their, of their Judaized Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, they decided they were the same substance, homoousius, rather than homoousius. And so there's your difference of one iota that dramatically influences the rest of the history of the world. If homoiousius had won out, we might have a different discussion and a different narrative at this point. Well, that's what Joseph Smith attempted to explain, is that there are different personalities and different beings in the heavens, and therefore God the Father and God the Son are homoiousius, similar substance, and you are homoiousius with God. In fact, now is a good time to reference Doctrine and Covenants section 93. Again, this is Mormon scripture, uh, revelation received by Joseph Smith. He said that the Lord taught him that man was also in the beginning with God. This is 93 verse 29. Man was also in the beginning with God, period. Intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither can it be. All truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it, to act for itself, as all intelligence also. Otherwise, there is no existence. And of course, when he's talking about intelligence, he's talking about you. Behold, here is the agency of man, and here is the condemnation of man, because that which was from the beginning is plainly manifest unto them, and they receive not the light. And every man whose spirit receiveth not the light is under condemnation. For man is spirit the elements are eternal and spirit and element inseparably connected receive a fullness of joy and when separated man cannot receive a fullness of joy we're separated from God being in the fallen cut off world verse 35 the elements are the tabernacle of God yea man is the tabernacle of God even temples and and whatsoever temple is defiled God shall destroy that temple The glory of God is intelligence. In other words, light and truth. And light and truth forsake that evil one. Remember the Genesis account that I read to you last time. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and he divided it from the darkness. I think that these are scriptures that ought to be m- compared more often than we compare them. They are, they're they're complementary. Well, again, you guys thought I was going to talk about Quidditch <laughs> and Harry Potter. And here I am, uh, 50 minutes into this almost, and we're still doing the introductory material And I've got a note here that says, keep this introductory. (laughs) Okay. Um, I've I've pointed all this out to drive home the point that I believe in a God separate from me, meaning a separate identity. And when we get into the more Eastern concepts, the more uh, spiritualistic ideas about the journey and about the struggle... It can lead us to only focus on the microcosm, which can lead us to what I'd call moral relativism. If you only believe that the the struggle is within you and that there's not an external macrocosmic war going on, then it's difficult to really understand that issue of theodicy and why God would put us in this situation. And we discuss that again in the Cosmology Podcast Theodicy, of course, meaning the justice of God. Why would a loving God put us in this situation where we're suffering? And why, you know, the the Christians basically, and and the Jews basically devolved to a point where they blamed it on the woman, Eve. She took the the fruit. That's why we fell. Well, the Book of Enoch, of course, explains that the fall was caused by Satan and his watchers, Azazel, is what he's called in that book. And the watchers, the fallen angels, they mutinied. They took over the system. I spend a lot of time trying to lay out from a more Christian perspective why that is a good narrative, and where the sources can be found in apocryphal works, and how that rationally works out relative to our, uh, to our friend Joseph Smith's help and his restoration, the King Follett material, and uh, Mormon themes. This is super important. Who is the source of evil in the world? It's not you. It's not Eve. It's not God; it's evil beings. And so, if you don't recognize a God separate from you, how do you recognize a devil separate from you? How do you rep- recognize evil separate from you? There are uh, a wide variety of beings in the cosmos. There's a w- there's a wide variety of possibilities, and that's that's where you get your your discussion of these hermetic dualities. Um, I, I realized also last last time I didn't ever define hermeticism. Hermeticism comes from uh, Greek. It it's uh, it means uh, knowledge related to or given by the, the messenger god, Hermes, who in uh, Roman mythology is Mercury, and in Egyptian mythology, he's Thoth, or sometimes called Chihuti, and in Hebrew mythology, the messenger god is Enoch. Hence, the Book of Enoch is of the utmost importance, and it's the most commonly referenced or most often referenced book in the Bible in the biblical canon that is not actually in the Bible and hence Margaret Barker had a lot of material (laughs) to draw from and and to talk about this older testament this older platform from which Jesus was teaching that is widely missed by Christianity Okay, well, anyway, a god separate from you. If you can't have these personalities among the gods, then it, it all becomes internal, and then you fall to moral relativism, and then you can pretty much justify anything because you, once you have become enlightened, <laughs> you know, it's just a struggle for the other people. They they need to become enlightened, and nothing matters beyond this life because we're all going back to the big ball of, of light afterwards, and, it, you know, it's all good. Well, that is... Not the scriptural message, the scriptural message, and the resonant message that we see in the great works, like Lord of the Rings, like Harry Potter, is that there is a dark Lord, and there is an there are evil forces aligned with him, and the forces of light must battle those forces to save the creation to save not just the micro creation but the macro creation and and uh, as I described last time again i 'll just say last time for. Podcast number 92, Cosmology. The, um, the narrative shows, the, the, the narrative that was shown to the Great Ones, the Great Sent Ones, was a cosmogony, meaning the creation of the cosmos, a cosmology, the layout of the cosmos, a titanomachy, or theomachy, a war between the gods, a fall, a depraved, fallen world, a uh, they they tend to see Christ fulfill his soteriological mission in that he comes down and makes intercession for the creation and makes an atonement for the creation. He he reconnects the creation. Now when when I said that last time I meant that he reconnected personally. It doesn't mean that our creation is connected. We're all cut off and only through Christ can we reconnect. And then the final piece that these uh, great ones end up seeing in their their visions of all things is they see the eschatos, and that field of study is called eschatology. And the main feature of the eschatos is the destruction of this fallen sphere and the judgment or the uh, resolution for the souls who are found in it. Okay, so there's my, there's our summary of the cosmology episode, and so when I say that I'm not enthused about the totality, even though I love a lot of what Joseph Campbell has written, even though I'm not enthused with the totality and the big picture message of the the hero with a thousand faces, there there's so much good in looking at comparative. Mythology and trying to figure out what good elements and truth we can take from it. That I I don't want to, I don't want you to come away from this thinking that I don't like Joseph Campbell's work. I think he did a a lot of great stuff. But what I just laid out, that is the hero's journey. (laughs) That is what I think of when I say the hero's journey. You can start it uh, in the heavens and then have the war and have the fall, or you can start it with Adam asleep on the earth having to wake up which is normally where the stories start. And then they are told about through narrative or through an in, uh, uh, an endowment type of a process, an initiation As they as they go through trials and go through experiences. They then, meaning the protagonist, they have to learn about where they came from and they have to learn about their parentage and their heritage and the nature of the conflict that they're caught in. That's the hero's journey. They encounter mentors. They... Uh, often uh, discover sacred implements they uh level up like you 're in a video game. they get powers upon powers and they then they they, continu- they encounter the minions of the dark Lord and then they ultimately have to encounter the dark Lord and they must escape uh, into uh either a higher world or um, a state of higher understanding. And conquer the Dark Lord, and they they, they need to receive divine intervention and uh, greater light and knowledge and greater powers and greater weapons in order to do this, and that in the end saves their creation. It rectifies the situation, and they, through that process, become far greater than what they previously were. Remember how when the four hobbits return at the end of Lord of the Rings, they are viewed as... Super hobbits. They are they are taller. Uh, Pippin and Merry, I believe, when they drank the the ent water, they which one was it? I've got to go get out my Lord of the Rings. Anyway, one of them was taller. They they were they were riding in on ponies, and they they were viewed as godly by the rest of the hobbits, and they chase out Saruman, which is not in the uh, that's not in the movies. But they they rid their homeland of a usurper king, and they can do so because of their metaphorical apotheosis. They're having become godly. So this is a a micro and a macro thing, and we definitely, on a micro level, we have to face elements of that journey, but you need to realize that your macrocosmic Hero's journey will occur over eons. It started well before this world, started long ago in a galaxy far away, <laughs> I don't know, and it continues on. And this is just a, a very, very important eon, a very, very important time, place, state, or element, or aspect of your progression, and it will go on and it will be a great while, as again, Joseph Smith said, it will be a great while after you've passed beyond the veil, before you learn your exaltation. We have to go from grace to grace, from level to level, from place to place, from exaltation to exaltation, until we can dwell with those who dwell in everlasting burnings and sit down in glory, as he describes, again, in the, in the April 7th, 1844, last conference address that, that he gave, that Joseph Smith gave. Okay. Wow. There's our context. We are an hour into this now and we've set up the context. Now, I'm going to get to Harry Potter here really soon. I've got this note here that says, keep it introductory. And you may be somewhat surprised by the fire hose here, but this is introductory material. And it does take a lot of time and careful, solemn, ponderous thought to really recognize that this is it, not what you've been taught, not the dogmatic stuff that you've been taught, but this is the stuff that's important, and it is the launching point. It is the kindergarten class, so to speak. In the in the, it's it's the first year. It's the first year of Harry Potter. I'm going to get to that in a second. Uh, but this is this is the first year at Hogwarts, and um, this story tastes good. It tastes good. You may choose to differ. I know there are detractors out there. Uh, again, I've told you. Reminded you that it's totally optional. You're listening to me because you want to, not because you're forced to. You don't have to believe anything I say. You should uh, confirm this. You know, you should ask God. You should ponder on it, whatever. Decide whether you think this is this is important material to learn. But uh, I believe it tastes good. It's good doctrine. And I'm quoting Joseph. It might, might offend you, but I'm quoting him. And I'm saying these words for myself. I can taste the principles of eternal life, and so can you. And these principles are given to me at a minimum by the inspiration of Jesus Christ, if not by revelation. I don't want to claim anything that I haven't received. I know Joseph Smith received great things and had had glorious views. But I believe that um, in my experience, it was God that led me to these things and has taught me these things. So, therefore, I know that when I tell you these words of eternal life as they are given to me, you taste them, and I hope that you believe them. You say, honey is sweet, and so do I. I can taste the spirit of eternal life, and I know it is good. And when I tell you of these things which were given me by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, hopefully you'll be bound to receive them as sweet and also rejoice with me. I think this is exciting stuff. Well, here's where we start. There are seven heavens. If you come from the Mormon background, that might be a little bit hard to swallow, but there are seven heavens. And what I mean by that is that there are seven levels of the celestial kingdom. We commonly teach in LDS circles that there are three levels and that the third level is divided up into other levels. That is sort of a a devolution of the understanding that there are seven levels in the celestial kingdom And definitely at the third level After the third level There, there is a uh, Demarcation point Where there are a lot fewer beings And a lot higher level beings Inhabit the fourth, fifth, sixth and seventh levels The situation is, is More difficult at that point More advanced There are many sources For this idea That there are seven heavens I'm going to start off with Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith taught the Colesville branch in the early part of, the, of church history that there are seven heavens. He said, this is attributed to Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner. I asked, Brother Joseph, how do you know you yourself will be saved? saved?" To which he replied, I know I will. I have the oath of God upon it, and God cannot lie. He said that Paul the Apostle was caught up to the third heaven, but I know one who was caught up to the seventh heaven and saw and heard things not lawful for me to utter. I believe you can find this uh, in Joseph E. Taylor, Collected Discourses, Volume One, and Orson F. Whitney, Conference Reports, October 1912, page seventy. The Collected Discourse of Joseph V. Taylor, Volume One, it was page one twenty-nine. In the Documented History of the Church, it's five colon four zero two, and then in a book called Hiram L. and by Hiram L. Andrus, called They Knew the Prophet, page 24 to 25. Uh, The author that I'm quoting here has said that he has a copy of the letter given to him by a friend, uh, which was the statement of Mary Elizabeth Rollins. Well, there you have it. Joseph Smith says there are seven heavens, and this should not be something we need to fight about because we believe in different levels of the celestial kingdom now we're going to talk more in detail well first I'm going to tell you also if you want to see other sources that describe seven heavens you can look at the book of Enoch chapter 18 in the book of Enoch chapter 18 this describes Enoch and his ascension and he says, I saw the winds of heaven which turn and bring the circumference of the sun and all stars into their setting. I saw the winds on the earth carrying the clouds and I saw the paths of the angels and I saw the end of the firmament of the heaven above and I proceeded, meaning going up. I saw a place which burns day and night. Clearly, this is the heavens where there are seven mountains of, magnific- of magnificent stones, three towards the east, three towards the south And, as for those towards the east, one was colored of one was of colored stone, one of pearl, one of jacinth, one the those towards the south of red stone, but the middle one, so here's your seventh one reached to the heaven like the throne of God of alabaster, and the summit of the throne was of sapphire. Remember this when you see other prophets describing how they viewed the Lord and what he was standing upon. There's also uh, an apocryphal writing called uh, The Ascension of Isaiah. I believe we'd call that apocryphal, not pseudepigraphical. The difference between apocryphal and pseudepigraphical is that the pseudepigrapha is um, more Old Testament and apocryphal is more New New Testament. These are generally books that were omitted from the canon for various reasons because they didn't support the... Monotheistic uh, Viewpoint very well They didn't support the limitations That the Judaizing Christians And the Jews prior to that Wanted to impose upon the narrative Okay so There are seven heavens Now when I say heavens I mean Celestial kingdom so let's talk about The word celestial I'm going to read to you From the etymology dictionary it's from the late 14th century. It's an adjective. It means pertaining to the sky or the visible heavens. Pertaining to the Christian or the pagan heaven. From the old French, celestial. Uh, celestial in French means heavenly. It can mean uh, sky blue. For it comes from the Latin, meaning heavenly or pertaining to the sky. It's uh, from... Kylem, meaning the heaven or the sky or the abode of the gods. And it's interesting because in um, French, the word ciel means sky. And in English, the word ceiling, ceiling <laughs> clearly comes from the word celestial or uh, kailum, uh or kailam, all of you, wherever you are, if unless you're outside, have a ceiling above you, and that should give you a little bit of a feel for how the ancients felt about the heavens. They're the place above, and and as I explained in our cosmology podcast, we use what we can visibly see, or or the or the great teachers used what we can we can visibly see to describe as, as an allegory. To describe the the system, so they they laid it out and um, told us that the heavens were above us. Whether whether the kingdom of heaven is within us or above us is all dependent on the type of context in which we're t- which we're talking about. But the the allegory places the heavens above us in the sky, and uh, therefore we call it celestial. And therefore we might. Modify our understanding of the plan of salvation and acknowledge that the heavens are the celestial kingdom and that brings us to and, and remember last time or last time in the cosmology episode, I pointed out that a better drawing of the system would be to take the plan of salvation drawing and just omit everything to the left side of the celestial terrestrial, and celestial kingdoms that would be an appropriate. Cosmological drawing right there We need to get rid of this um, The stuff to the left The pre-earth life, the earth And the paradise and prison Because that all is encapsulated In the lowest kingdom, the telos And I'm going to get to that in a second And I explained to you in in the cosmology episode That A a harmonious cosmos would, Would involve heavens and an earth And that's where we get to terra The terrestrial kingdom Terra, of course, means earth and if I look up in the etymology dictionary the word terrestrial it it means it's from a similar time period the 14th century meaning of or pertaining to the earth from the Latin terrestris earthly on the land terra earth in Latin so you have a heavens and an earth in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth And the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. Well, it says the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. I need to memorize that so I don't mess it up. Okay, but anyway, you can see what I'm getting at here is that we have um, we we have an unnecessary complication, in our at least in our Mormon circles, we have an unnecessary complication of the cosmology. It, it limits us. We can't say that God, it's difficult to understand that God was upon high and that he condescended or descended down below all things, then he went back upon high when we have this linear time element broken out to the left. We also were with God in the beginning and came down from somewhere, either terrestrial or celestial, and fell into this world, and we must get back out and go back up. Hence the term Anastasis, or Resurgere, resurrection, means to be lifted up or to, stood, to be stood back up. It's it's not necessarily about receiving the body that we have. It's about getting back out into the presence of God, getting uh, out of the fallen world. So Terra, the, the middle world, or the, the uh, middle place, is the terrestrial kingdom, a kingdom of glory, a garden-like place where we don't have to deal with death and loss of memory like we do here. And then, of course, we have this fallen world, which is de- generally dr- drawn when it's drawn on a on a Ptolemaic cosmos. It's generally drawn with a line, ignis or fire, a a, a veil, a demarcation point that separates it from the other two spheres. And it's, Uh, Often described as being uh, The furthest away Hence the word Telestial Is appropriate Uh, Let's see if there's an etymological Description of telestial Okay so It's an unusual word It's not found in the Etymology dictionary That I like to reference But it does derive from the Greek Telos meaning the utmost end; it can mean high or low, um, but it really, in in this case, it's furthest away. It's it's the furthest from the throne of God, and so therefore, the Latin "inferno" is appropriate. And I'll I'll pull up that um in the etymology dictionary. Uh, if you look that up, it's a noun. It means hell or the infernal regions. From the Latin inferno, from late Latin Furnus, the classi- classical Latin meaning the lower world. It's the largest or it's the farthest away from the throne of God. It's the lower world, the furthest down. And so that's uh, an, appropriate, um, an appropriate way to look at the layout of the cosmos. You have the heavens, you have this, the terrestrial earth, the garden earth, and you have the fallen world which is cut off from the heavens. It's the inferno. It's the furthest away. It's the dead world, the region of the dead, according to the etymology dictionary here. And we, as I explained before, are the dead. We are considered both spiritually and temporally dead, having been cut off from the presence of the Lord. Go see Helaman chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. Now, there are other verses in the Book of Mormon that I think clearly establish that we're in the fallen world and that we're considered dead being here, temporarily dead, temporarily dead, cut off from the presence of the Lord, subject to death in the mortal body, the dying dead body, the entropic body, and that that is not a harmonious, uh, regular situation. This is a an anomaly in the otherwise positive um Cosmos, system of the gods That leads to the progression and refinement of the souls It's important that we lay all that out clearly And that you consider the content of the cosmology podcast we did So that we can then use that structure to look at Harry Potter What you see in Harry Potter is two different worlds You see the world of the Muggles And you see the world of the wizards, and they're divided by a train, (laughs) the Hogwarts Express. In order to get to Hogwarts, you have to go through a portal, a veil of sorts, at Platform 9 and 3 quarters, and you have to board the train, and there's always an experience on the train in between the worlds. And then you get to the Hogwarts, which is essentially a metaphorical temple, or a representation of the heavens, because, of course, there are seven levels at Hogwarts. Seven years of learning that the kids go through to become full-fledged wizards. So, here we are now discussing Harry Potter. I hope you can see it. The muggle world, is unfortunately, represents the fallen world or the the unknowing world. And the wizarding world, of course, is the heavenly world where the gods dwell. And Harry does not know who he is. And so, therefore, the first book is for us a cosmology. It teaches us about ourselves, about Harry, and about the wizarding world and the cosmos or the actual reality that has been hidden from us all of our lives until we come to that awakening point. And for Harry, it is uh, around his 11th birthday when he receives the letters um, from Hogwarts. And of course, Hagrid has to come and intervene. And then he's able to take up the call to adventure, as Joseph Campbell puts it, and embark upon this journey to become a wizard. And along the way, he realizes or is taught or learns that he is unavoidably caught in a struggle with the Dark Lord, the greatest dark wizard known to anyone alive and perhaps in the history of all wizards. Well, Hogwarts is definitely a temple. Hogwarts is is a, an interesting edifice. You've got, uh, first of all, you have learning going on there. Uh, seven different levels. It, it is essentially uh, sort of a scale model of the cosmos, as Nibley would um, want a temple to be. You have an observatory at the top, you have dungeons in the basement, you have a great hall, kind of like the Egyptian hypostyle hall where the, the heavens are open to whoever walks into there. In uh, Hogwarts, the great hall. Is where they all gather, and the ceiling has been bewitched to look look like the sky outside. You have a library, and the library factors heavily into all of the <laughs> almost all of the books. Uh, the kids, uh, Harry and Ron, and Hermione, are always going there for more information about their not only their studies but. To understand the nature of the conflict that they're caught in In all of their trials and So so Hogwarts is definitely a temple where they learn And uh, in the end It becomes the place of the last battle It is essentially a nexus point You have multiple passages in and out of it That are secret Um, (laughs) There are many secrets contained therein and, and anyway, I don't want to spend all the time talking about Hogwarts as a temple, but remember, the temple is supposed to be a scale model of the the cosmos, the system, and in, in our case, the or in Harry Potter's case, this definitely represents at a minimum the heavens, the seven heavens, because of the seven levels of, um, or the seven years of schooling that the kids go through. Now again, I must remind you, Is this what J.K. Rowling intended? That's the question I want to ask. I do not know if this is her opinion. Obviously, this is my opinion, and obviously she would hold differing opinions from me on a variety of subjects. Maybe she intended all of this. Maybe she didn't. I don't know. It does appear, though, that J.K. Rowling does know some really important things about the nature of reality, and she incorporated them symbolically into her writings, For example, let's talk about the nonsensical wizard substitution for the game soccer, right? Isn't that what Quidditch really is? Is uh, that she needed some high school sport for the kids to rally around and, and it had to be similar to soccer because that's the most popular sport in the world and so how do we make this into a wizarding game? I submit that it's a very intentional allegory of the cosmos or a a symbolic representation of what I just laid out to you uh, as the basic elements of the cosmos and the hero's journey all wrapped up into this uh, nonsensical wizarding game. And by the way, (laughs) again, this being the opinion of Jordan Bruno, I have... I've done a cursory search over the years for people who have uh, hold similar opinions. I believe that you're hearing this first on the Mind Virus podcast. Uh, it's possible that after today's date, you'll start to see other evidences of people talking about similar concepts. I don't know. I haven't been able to find it. I haven't really gone out looking for it. This is my interpretation based on the symbolic uh, language that I understand. But I I think this is novel. I'm uh, not drawing this from anybody else except for the sources that I've referenced and and putting this together. I think it's incredibly exciting and interesting and it says a lot. Um, But, you know, I could be wrong. Take it for what it's worth. Quidditch. I, I did do a little bit of looking as to whether that name means anything. I believe in interviews that J.K. Rowling said that she spent a lot of time trying to come up with a name for this wizarding soccer or football, whatever you want to call it. They, of course, they call football. They call soccer football everywhere in the world except in the United States. So it's really football, right? It's played with your feet. American football is played with uh, your hands mostly. (laughs) At least that's what you do with the ball: is you throw the ball, run the ball and rarely do they kick the ball. Well, my understanding, uh, based on what I read, was that she spent a lot of time just trying to come up with a good name, and she settled on Quidditch, and it doesn't really mean anything. But let's look at the, the form and the function and the symbols of the game. Now, on each side you have seven players. Hmm, there's our number seven again. But look at this. You've got one seeker, one keeper, two beaters, and three chasers. Now, zero, one, one, two, three is the beginning of the Fibonacci sequence. And if you watched the Da Vinci Code movie or read the book, um, you know when they find the old secret keeper, Jacques Sauniere. Who has been shot and posed himself on the floor of the Louvre and has written all kinds of uh, secret messages around himself? The first thing they discover is that he's written the Fibonacci sequence, which is a tip off that there's greater knowledge uh, or hidden knowledge around. And so it's interesting that when we look at the layout of the, uh, or the composition of the, players of the game quidditch we we find the fibonacci sequence there and we find that there are 7 players on either side now quidditch is played on an elliptical pitch an elliptical field it's sort of reminiscent of heavenly orbits and what you see is the that the players are looping back and forth around and around on this Quidditch pitch and so they are engaged in uh, progression through this cyclical uh, circling spiraling motion which again is very appropriate if you're into archaeo astronomical mythology and and teachings like this and clearly JK Rowling is um, have to give a shout out to a friend who pointed this one thing out to me I, I knew she's into the archaeoastronomical stuff Bec- uh, one of the big tip-offs is uh, Sirius Black in the third book Sirius is of course the name of the, br- the brightest star in the heavens which is uh, it comes up just after Orion in the night sky and uh, it's part of Canis Major It's called the Dog Star, and of course Sirius Black can transfigure himself into a big black dog. Thank you, uh, unnamed friend, for reminding me of that. That is a really important tip-off that Rowling is incorporating archaeoastronomical mythological themes. And so uh, here we have the Quidditch pitch, which reminds us of the, the heavenly bodies, cycling, and if we know anything about the Ptolemaic cosmos, which I've, again, laid out for you today, there are three different main spheres or main degrees of glories, regardless of the levels within them. And those are celestial, terrestrial, and then the fallen world, telestial. And at, the, at either end of the Quidditch pitch, and it's really cool how they depict it in the movies, so if you've seen the movies... This will be interesting to you. They have three hoops, three circular hoops, all at each one is at a higher level than the next. It's not, they're not laid out in a linear fashion. And a lot of people probably think that, and remember, Rowling had a lot to do with the movie. She, one of the stipulations for, um, her in her contract was that she got to have creative control over the movies and the movies do hit the high points And some people uh, didn't like the adaptations of the books into the movies because they weren't movie enough you know like they didn't move like a movie they just looked like they were a tour of the books but remember rolling is putting very specific things out there for you to see so she hits these high points uh, of cosmology in the movies as well and when they when they show you the layout of the Quidditch pitch you see these three staggered hoops each one is higher than the next there is your celestial, terrestrial, and telestial glories I, I, at either end of the pitch and remember the game revolves around four different balls you have the quaffle which the chasers are throwing back and forth and they try to get Throw the ball into the into each of the hoops or into one of the hoops at the end of the the pitch, and the keeper has to try to defend the three different goals at the same time from uh, the chasers who are throwing this quaffle around, and every time they get the ball through one of the hoops at the end of the pitch, their team scores ten points and It just sounds so nonsensical the way this works because of course um. Well, we've got to talk about the bludgers also. There's these sort of demonic balls that are just flying around, and they are trying to knock the wizards off their brooms while they play this game up in the air or up in the celestial realm, up in the heavens, in the higher space above us. That's why it has to be played on brooms, because you have wizards flying around. It's very similar to, for example... Uh, Angelic iconography in the Christian world where your angels all have wings or in the Egyptian world where the uh, higher level beings are described as birds or these women have birds for or they have wings for arms and feathers are super important in the Egyptian uh, description of these themes because the feather, of course, represents light and truth and knowledge and power and um, of course, godly power, which comes from his knowledge and his uh, omniscience. Well, Quidditch, of course, is played in the air on brooms, and the the players are constantly being bombarded by bludgers, which are these demonic balls trying to knock them off their brooms and send them falling, crashing again to the earth. Weird, huh? Well, the, the bludgers are... Uh, kept at bay by the two beaters while the chasers are running around circling the pitch. And this is, this is the basic elements of the game. The, <laughs> the chasers are trying to throw the quaffle into the hoops at either end and the beaters are trying to protect everybody from the bludgers and it's cy- circling, circling like the potter's wheel, right? And what's crazy about it is that there's this other element of the game that's going on while all of that is going on. And this is the big clincher that we're dealing with cosmic themes because you have these two seekers on either side who are after the golden snitch. And when one of them catches the golden snitch, the game is over and that team receives 150 points. And usually the team that catches the snitch wins because their 150 points eclipses whatever. Whatever points have already been scored at least in the in the uh, narratives of of the games that we see in the harry potter series and in the seven books it's generally the team that gets the snitch that wins except for in book four at the quidditch world cup when the irish score so many points uh that they um get 10 points more than victor crumb's team the bulgarians who uh are the ones that catch the snitch victor crumb catches it of course and uh, it's, a big, it's a big mess of a game. Uh, there's a lot going on, and you, you're left to wonder whether Victor Crum knew that they were behind that far when he caught the snitch, because otherwise, why would you even catch the snitch if, uh, if your team's behind by more than 150 points? Because, of course, the goal is to win, and when you catch the snitch, the game is over. Well, the point here is that w- what we have is a seeker seeking the snitch and the golden snitch is a golden a little tiny golden ball with golden wings or a silver and gold ball with with golden wings and it flits all over and it's mysterious and it's hard to see and it's hard to catch and when you see it you've got to go after it immediately and um of course the winged sun disk, which is what, it, what this golden snitch represents, if you look at it, you've got a little disk there with wings, a little ball with wings. The winged sun disk is one of the most significant symbols of wisdom in the history of the world. It, the, the winged sun disk is seen all over in Egypt. It's a symbol of the mother, Hathor, and of Isis, the women, who are the wisdoms, of course. I guess we've got to talk a little bit about wisdom Wisdom, of course, is a feminine word. It is uh, a representative of the women goddesses of the the feminine uh, female divinity. And, of course, it's something that is always lost. Uh, It was especially lost to the Jews. If we read Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, we find that after the conspirators had brought forth this new copy of the law or this second law, uh, Verse 5, he's, they're instructing them, you know, I have taught you the statutes and judgments even as the Lord my God commanded me. This is the, the, the law of Moses stuff, the stuff that caused them to not recognize their God when he came among them and to kill him, to crucify him. You know, I've taught you these things that you should do so in the land whither you go to possess it. So these are things that are going to keep the people in possession of their land. He says, therefore, keep this law, keep them and do them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations. Let that sink in. The Jews replaced wisdom with the law. They said this law will be your wisdom and your understanding. This is a huge problem. And it's one of those things that Margaret Barker spends a lot of time on, showing us how they changed the religion from a more colorful uh bright spiritual discovery of self and discovery of the gods involving the the mother and daughter goddess goddesses and and this divine feminine aspect into uh a religion they changed it into a religion where they were focused on law and it devolved to a point where they you know can only take so many steps on Sunday you can't spit lest your spittle plow the ground and cause something to grow i mean it gets to be really ridiculous i mean no offense to anyone out there who who likes that stuff i just prefer this other narrative and i prefer wisdom and and spirituality over uh this rote legalistic um, structure well Wisdom is the English word that um, relates to the Greek sophia. Sophia is the word for wisdom in Greek. In Hebrew, it's hokma, and of course, we have this interesting word philos sophia in coming out of Greek. And so, uh, it would be very obvious that the uh, Judaizing elements of uh, early Christianity would want to pin. Uh, the evil upon Greek philosophers, people who love wisdom, rather than uh, admit that they are reincorporating elements of the of the Deuteronomistic rebellion in the way they set up the uh, Christianity in the first few centuries after the apostles died. Well, wisdom is very important. Let me just read to you a little bit from Hebrews chapter three. Verse. 13. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom, and the man that getteth understanding, for the merchandise of it, it's feminine, the merchandise of her is better than the merchandise of silver, and the gain thereof than fine gold. Here here they get it right. She is more precious than rubies. Um, Of course, I'm reading from the King James. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things thou canst desire are not to be compared unto her. Length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand, riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and her paths are paths of peace. All her paths are paths of peace. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her and happy is everyone that retaineth her. The Lord, now this could be meaning the Son or perhaps the Father because remember the Lord, Adonai the the Yahweh, this is the word Yahweh it can, it it got everything got boiled down into one God here as best the the revisionist scribes could make it uh, in the texts that uh, survived so this is probably it could be talking about the Son it could be talking about the Father but the Lord by his wisdom hath founded the earth And by understanding, he hath established the heavens. And if you look at our world being cut off, being owned by um, Jesus himself, who was given dominion over the world, he's the true king of creation, the the only one who can make restitution for it because he's the rightful heir for it, and he gave dominion to Adam. This is why when um, Abinadi says that uh, Jesus is the very eternal father of heaven and earth, he is very correct and very in sync with this ancient perspective because Jesus is the very eternal father of this earth and its cut-off heavens. He is the owner of it, and um, he is the one true God of it. Doesn't mean that the father isn't sovereign, that there isn't a father. It's just that technically he is the Christ, the anointed one, the one anointed, the, the symbolically the one that's given dominion and the one that's given power over it. And, and he, of course, delegated dominion to Adam, which created the conflict or was part of the conflict that we discussed in the Cosmology podcast. And, of course, the Lord, by his wisdom or by wisdom, however you want to put it, hath founded the earth. So who else participated in creation? of the earth and the heavens? Wisdom. Very, very important. Who wins the game of Quidditch when they catch the snitch, the symbol of wisdom, the the winged sun disk, the symbol of the woman and her son? Who wins the game? The seeker does. The game's over when they capture wisdom, when they catch it. If any of you lack wisdom, well, you should ask God, who won't get on your case won't, won't upbraid you Won't criticize you for asking But gives liberally to all men And of course ask in faith Not wavering But ask in faith With correct understanding And belief Well Harry Potter lacks wisdom And so he has to catch the snitch And there you have it Quidditch A clear metaphor for the cosmos and the problem we all face, lacking wisdom. There's more in the book, the first book, and I'm just talking about the first book today for the most part. There's more in the first book that is really, really important. Um, I'm not going to get too much into it, but Harry begins to get uh, an understanding of the Theomachy, the Titanomachy, the war between the gods. He very early on is, uh, gets these hints about a, a conflict and, and a, an evil force wanting to usurp control. And that's uh, told through the story of the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, it may come as news to you, but in England, the first book is not called the Sorcerer's Stone. It's called the Philosopher's Stone that's very important Because it all revolves around this MacGuffin This uh, philosopher's stone That uh, the wizards are able to make Through an alchemical or a a potion making process And that stone uh, Allows whoever has it To brew a potion called the elixir of life Which gives... Whoever drinks it, immortality or eternal life, okay, and also allows that person to turn any base metal into gold, so they can make uh, they they can become rich, right? It's all about being. It's that's what alchemy is all about, right? Is to get gold, right? Not so. Let me read again here from the Old Testament. And, you know, I know I rip on the Old Testament often, but there are a lot of good things in there. Who may abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering. In righteousness, that's Malachi chapter three. There's our most alchemical passage in uh, the Bible. Well, at least the most obvious alchemical passage that we're refining gold and silver. We're, or, or in the case of the philosopher's stone, turning base metals into gold and silver. So, of course, that is an analogy for, or a, a symbol for eternal progression, for taking a person like me who is would be considered lead, dead, uh, corrupted, and turning me into gold, or you into gold or silver, uh, a more desirable, a godly element. And if it weren't obvious enough, J.K. Rowling incorporates a man named Nicholas Flamel into the discussion about the creation of the Philosopher's Stone, In in the narrative of Harry Potter and Nicholas Flamel is a real or was a real 14th century French alchemist. And so she's giving us some really strong hints here uh, as to what type of material she's embarking on. Of course, the whole conflict of the book is that Harry and Ron and Hermione catch wind of this plot to steal the sorcerer or the Philosopher's Stone again. F- philosopher is a far better. I don't know why they had to change it for the American um, for the American market, but they do stuff like that. It would be great if we could just call it the Philosopher's Stone, like it really is. Right, but I guess it's not uh, dark enough or evil enough. And, and one thing that kills me about the Harry Potter series is that a lot of the Protestant crowd wants to say that it's evil because it's dealing with. Witches and witchcraft and, and wizards and, and magic and stuff like that. That's, that's really unfortunate, but it does keep perhaps the tire kickers and detractors at bay. I find it interesting that Halloween factors heavily into these books. There's always something interesting happening at Halloween, and they have a Halloween feast at Hogwarts. And th- that's all they do. They have a Halloween feast. They don't celebrate evil. They fight against evil. They fight against the dark arts. And our celebrations of Halloween in our mainly Protestant American uh, marketplace world, they've really devolved into this celebration of evil. There's a lot of money in haunted houses and horror type of uh, experiences and horror movies. And it gets really, really dark. The Harry Potter series is, although, although it's serious, although there's a lot of darkness in it, it's it's incredibly good because they're battling the darkness. They the the protagonists are um good characters. They're good people. They're beings of light. And in the end, Harry goes through this Christ cycle, this Christ hero's journey cycle as he goes through his seven years of experience and he has to sacrifice himself for his create for for the creation, for his friends, for his family. He has to be willing to give up his life in order to have power over the Dark Lord. It's very similar to Aslan in uh, C.S. Lewis's um, Chronicles of Narnia where he allows the bad guys to sacrifice him on an altar and he comes back stronger than ever. So it's just—it's a dilemma. It's a conundrum. We, we don't find a lot of people talking about this and we find uh, certain segments of the Christian world wanting to... Um, Burn this book, I guess, be, or or limit uh, people from it because uh, it uses the the metaphor of the this wizarding world, and they see that as dark. And then on the and it makes it kind of hypocritical, right? Because on the other hand, we celebrate darkness every Halloween, and that's not the way it's depicted in the in the books at all. Well, the Philosopher's Stone. Is of course our symbol of the cosmos, all in one, or of of at one with God, depending on how you want to look at it. It again gives you eternal life and can refine uh, metal into gold. And it's definitely a a real alchemical symbol that was used in uh, the the, rena- the early Renaissance, the Middle Ages and Nicholas Flamel is a real person and a real historical figure, and clearly there, there's symbolic meaning here in, the, in this book. The thing that's interesting about the conflict is that Dumbledore and the teachers at Hogwarts have recognized this conflict. They've already been embroiled in the war, and so they take steps to hide the Philosopher's Stone. They take steps to protect the cosmos. They've ta- they take steps to cut the Dark Lord off from it and make it so that any unworthy person or being cannot ex- access this symbol of the cosmos, this symbol of, of progression, the symbol of uh, at-one-ment with God in the Philosopher's Stone. And they set up a series of trials that... Protect the stone and here again we have Another iteration Of symbolic Structure showing us That this is a a cosmological Endeavor If it weren't obvious We encounter Cerberus In the form of Fluffy Hagrid's uh, Pet three headed dog This huge dog that guards The entrance to uh, essentially a trap door down into the lower reaches of the castle where uh, they've hidden the philosopher's stone. Well, Cerberus in Greek mythology is often referred to as the Hound of Hades. This is a multi-headed dog that guards the gates of the underworld. Here again, you have a huge tip-off, a huge symbolic element of the story telling you that there are greater things to discover. And in the book, the kids run into into Fluffy, the three headed dog, uh, in in their r- runnings around the castle. And and the teachers have told them that this is off limits, this this third uh floor corridor off to the side where they you shouldn't go unless you want to die a very painful death. <laughs> okay? That's the way Dumbledore describes it. You're gonna die if you go through there. Well, Fluffy is guarding this trap door that the kids go through, and they drop down into uh, sort of a garden state, but it's a it's a fallen garden state because it, this these these vines try to choke them, and, and of course they only discover all of this stuff when they when they put all the pieces together and they realize they have to go down and try to rescue the the stone. Okay. There's a lot here. I'm not going to try to, I could spend a long time trying to point out some of the really cool angles on this, but the kids realize they have to go down. And they, so they go, they they realize they've got to find the stone, but they end up going down. Okay, they end up falling. And they um, fall into these vines that are trying to, trying to, Strangle them, and and they can only escape by Hermione casting this spell of light and fire that that creates warmth and light to reduce the effect or or shrink back this counterfeit garden state, this this bad garden (laughs) that they're that they're caught in, and that's how they escape the first trial, and then they go through a door where they encounter a room full of flying keys. These are keys with wings that are flying around and they need to find the right key to open the door to move on to the next trial. Well, again, this is, again, uh, we're talking about light acquisition, the acquisition of knowledge, the acquisition of correct understanding, right? And so they have to find the right key to open the next door. So they're going through a first gate, then a second gate, um, you know and then they they encounter the keys and then there's a third gate that they open up with that that key they've got to in order to get that key Harry has to get on the broom and fly up high and 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 use his agility and skills to to grab that key and then he can open the next door and the next door they encounter a conflict a a, a very um uh, a heady conflict in the form of wizard's chess and Ron has to Direct that uh, That endeavor And he has to sacrifice himself In order to get through that fight To the next gate To the next room Where they encounter again An alchemical situation It, it, it requires the logic of Hermione To uh, To get through that next trial And the next trial The, the alchemical trial or the, or the potions trial Is not represented in the movies It's, uh, it's uh, skipped but what happens is they walk into that uh, third... See, it's the the fourth room. So for if the first room was the garden, the the second room is the keys, the third room is the uh, wizard's chest. The fourth room contains this set of potions where there's a little uh, puzzle telling you that one three of the potions will kill you and two of the potions will help you. One can let you go backwards and the other will let you go forwards. And the reason that they need to take those potions is because when they walk into the room, they are immediately encircled by a fire. They have to take the right potions in order to get through the refiner's fire. Okay. (laughs) It's so in your face, this stuff. And so Hermione takes the potion to go back and help Ron. And she tells Harry, which is the right potion that he can go forward. And when he gets through that, Secondary, uh, second, the penultimate trial, the second to last trial. He enters a room where he sees the mirror of Erised, and he sees Professor Quirrell trying, who who is the um who has him uh taken Voldemort within himself, and he he, Quirrell is trying to get the stone out of the mirror. Well, now we get to talk about the mirror of Erised. So the mirror of Erised is this huge mirror that Harry encounters when he is running around trying to solve the mystery in the castle at night using his the the invisibility cloak that was once his father's he re- ends up in a room uh, i believe he was in the library or something and he you know we've got Harry Potter uh know-it-alls out there that are going to correct this but i i believe he was in the library he was out in the hall or something and he is trying to avoid Filch and Snape, and he ends up going through a door into a room that uh, is deserted except for this big, huge mirror, and he looks into the mirror, and he sees his himself, but he also sees his parents standing next to him, and this blows his mind. He runs back to his room, and he gets Ron, and he's like, Ron, you've got to see this, and they come back, and... Ron, he's like, look, my parents are here, you know, and he puts Ron in front of the mirror, and Ron doesn't see Harry's parents. He sees himself as head boy and Quidditch captain and as this very successful uh, person that he's always wanted to be, sort of uh, the example of of his uh, older brothers who've been really successful at school and in life. And so they're confused. Harry, Harry wants to see his parents, but Ron... Uh, isn't seeing that, and so they're they're trying to figure out w- what the deal is with the mirror. And it turns out that the this is a fairly simple puzzle that J.K. Rowling put together. The, the name of the mirror, era set is just desire spelled backwards. And so, when you look into the mirror, you see what you desire the most. And there's this inscription running around the the frame of the mirror that says "Eresed stra erhu erhu oit ub kafru oit on wosi," and it looks like it's in a foreign language. But if you just flip that around backwards and uh, re-space the words, it basically says, "I show not your face, but your heart's desire," which is exactly what the mirror does. And Dumbledore, of course, finds these kids looking at the mirror and he tells them, guys, you can't look, you can't keep looking in the mirror uh, because Harry keeps coming back uh, night after night because his parents are there, right? And Dumbledore tries to explain that, uh, you know, you're going to lose your soul. A lot of people have lost their soul by looking into this mirror for too long and you need to stop it because it's not reality it's just what you desire the most. And they ask Dumbledore, well, what do you see when you look in the mirror? And he says, well, I, I see myself holding a pair of warm woolen socks, which, of course, shows that Dumbledore sort of um, at least somewhat mastered his desires. And he goes on and explains that the happiest man on earth would look into the mirror and see only himself exactly as he is. Dumbledore Uh, tells Harry that it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. So again, this metaphor, this motif here, this type, this symbol, this shadow, it's telling us something about reality and our desires. This is a very, very, very hermetic or esoteric symbol. Of course, I think I mentioned before that the or one of the hermetic mottos or dictums is gnothe se auton, gnothi se auton meaning know yourself. And this is clearly an element of the story that's trying to remind us of that idea. And Dumbledore has astutely hidden the philosopher's stone in the mirror and therefore because Voldemort's desires are not pure, he cannot obtain the stone. He desires to use the stone for nefarious purposes. He desires to subject others to him. He he desires to destroy and promote death and destruction rather than to promote life. And so therefore, he is not going to be capable of getting the stone out of this mirror. It's a perfect hiding place well Harry he is able to get the stone and he asks Dumbledore why he was able to get the stone when Voldemort wasn't and Dumbledore tells him that well only somebody who wasn't desiring to use the stone can obtain the stone and I think that that ought to be if if the stone the philosopher's stone represents the cosmos and at one moment I think the, the main takeaway there should be that Only somebody who was not wanting to exploit the stone can obtain the stone. Because that's the whole, that was the whole point of the narrative in the cosmology podcast is that the adversary, Lucifer, Azazel, he desires to exploit the system. He desires to take it unto himself and use it for his own nefarious purposes. And so that can't be. That that is uh, contrary to the agency of man It's contrary to life and light and uh, therefore contrary to the whole entirety of, of the meaning of alchemy and progression, et cetera, et cetera. And so therefore, Dumbledore has set up the perfect protection for the stone and only Harry can get it. Well, those are the trials that they have to go through. And again, those trials represent... The cosmos and the hero's journey, and especially the fallen world and, and coming out of it in a wonderful, symbolic way. Well, I've gone two hours here, and there's at least one more thing that I want to talk about, maybe more. But this relates to Hermeticism, and it's important to point out that one of the most important characters in the story of Harry Potter is Hermione. Hermione. Now she's feminine, of course, but Hermione is the feminine form of Hermes, <laughs> and Hermione happens to be, as they say often, the brightest witch of her age, and it's she's very focused on knowledge and and of course um the wise application of that knowledge. She's sort of a leavening influence for the boys ron and and Harry, and she's indispensable, she's so important. Uh, they, they can't do it without her, and of course, she is uh, a, a very much a, a wisdom figure and very much a link in her name to Hermeticism, and again, Hermeticism or, or the Hermetic study, the goal of Hermetic study is to know yourself and to acquire the Prisca Sapientia, it's a search for the original knowledge, and... That knowledge was brought to mankind by Enoch or Thoth or Hermes or Mercury, depending on which system you're in, and so therefore we call it hermeticism. Now, if you go Google hermeticism online, you're going to find all kinds of crazy stuff. I would again point you to Temple and Cosmos if you want to uh, if you want to read about hermeticism from a more appropriate perspective then go read on page 379 of Hugh Nibley's Temple and Cosmos, One Eternal Round, The Hermetic Version. And here is how he describes hermeticism. Nibley explains that hermeticism or hermetism is the label for a body of knowledge resembling that of the gospel, which has been circulated among mankind for a very long time. How does it relate to the gospel? That is the question I shall now attempt to answer. It was always claimed by those who accepted the Hermetic message as true that it was knowledge revealed in the beginning to one Hermes Trismegistus. He was a man who became deified only after his death. He was always identified with Thoth, the Egyptian god who presided over all branches of knowledge and the dispensing of such. He was also identified by the Egyptians with the famous Imhotep, the great vizier of Djoser, the founder of the Third Dynasty and one of the great creative geniuses of all time. Imhotep was beyond dispute a real person, and whether he was the thrice greatest Hermes or not was beside the point, which is that there actually were men living in far distant times of the caliber of the fabulous Trismegistus and the equal of any who have since lived. Here we are dealing with world-class noodles, <laughs> okay? And then he goes on to talk about Joseph Smith in the, in the sense of uh, being a hermetic, world-class noodle. He says, uh, quoting Joseph, I was destined to prove a disturber and an annoyer of Satan's kingdom. And he says we can confidently place him as one of the few great ones of hermetic stature. Now what's important about Nibley's essay, and I do think you should read it, is he talks about the themes that the Hermetic teachers and that Hermeticism itself encompasses, and he relates them to the gospel. And in the end, he doesn't want to classify Mormonism as overtly Hermetic, but he doesn't want to discard it either. He's trying to point out that Christianity lost its way and that Hermeticism lost its way. Which is why I think it's so important that we incorporate King Follett and Christianity into the discussion, into the, into the Hermetic discussion. It's very, very important. And I think that's what J.K. Rowling did here with Harry Potter. She set up a Christ figure. He does sacrifice himself in the end in the seventh book. And you see him. Okay, I, more, Here's another point. You see him linking up with the red-haired woman uh, in the form of Ginny Weasley. The Weasleys are this pure-blood wizarding family, clearly representative of those from a higher place. There are seven kids, Charlie, Bill, Percy, Fred and George, and Ron and Ginny, and only one girl, and uh, they're famous for their red hair, and, and so was Mary Magdalene, of course. And um, Harry of course uh, Marries her In the end after After he defeats the Dark Lord uh, You know it, it rhymes really well This just rhymes really well with uh, What I see as The most resonant The most flavorful Telling or interpretation Of how I see Mormonism Well What you take from this is up to you. I'm going to go ahead and end the podcast here. I would invite you to go ahead and contact us through the comments if you feel so inclined. Uh, And if you want to keep that discussion private, I'm cool with that. Uh, I'll remind you again that the Holy Ghost works through pure intelligence. Its effect is pure intelligence. It affects us in a way that is not simply a good feeling, but strokes of pure intelligence, pure knowledge, unadulterated knowledge, it's more powerful than anything else in, in storing the mind with intelligence and knowledge. And I hope that we, uh, as a group, and not, I know not everybody is this way, but I hope we are soft-hearted people versus hard-hearted people, we, that we're willing to allow resonant, pure knowledge to penetrate our hearts. Because... that's when God can continue the conversation with us. That's when he can further instruct us. If we'll, if we'll pick up where Joseph Smith left off, I truly believe that God will continue instructing us. And he left off right there in 1844 in April and May discussing openly what I believe he outlined in more veiled terms, but he still outlined them, Early on, in the 1820s and 30s, he began discussing openly this more ancient, greater understanding of the Prisca Sapientia, of the actual reality of the world in which we find ourselves. And so, if this is resonant to you, you really ought to continue to pull on these threads to continue the journey to continue your search for wisdom you're on a grail quest right you're you're on a you're on a quest through the labyrinth to capture the goblet of fire or to grab the golden snitch as a as a one of the main most important players in whatever quidditch match you find yourself these stories are timeless because they are about us because they are about our time and our place and our state in the cosmos. And, um, on that note, I will leave all of you for the week. I hope that you have a good week. I, I am a little late putting this out today. I want to get this out. So I want to stop right here and let it go. And I do hope you'll consider these things and, uh, think long and hard about them. And of course, As far as truth goes, you bring that up with God and you decide what it is you're supposed to do and what you need to uh, believe and, of course, stand watch, listening and waiting for his instructions to you personally. And I hope that if you're on this journey, if you're on the quest, that this will be helpful to you and that you will have God's speed on your Journey, and that you will find what you are looking for and conquer what you need to conquer. All right, everybody, take care. Have a great week.